You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. God is Great, an Exploration of God's Majesty. We now reach the crescendo, a study of God's greatness. In the earlier chapters, we've been exploring the nature of God, the one who is more wonderful, awesome, and glorious than we can possibly comprehend. This has included discussions about four of the ways he is utterly unique and three of the ways he is infinitely good. We will now focus on three of the ways he is majestic. To say this with a bit more flair, we will now explore a few of the ways God transcends our world more completely than Michael Jordan transcended the NBA. This is a study about God's greatness. It will focus on his holiness, omniscience, and omnipotence. The holiness of God. Psalm 99, the Lord our God is holy. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Between Clarence, the inept wingless angel in It's a Wonderful Life, and the ubiquitous precious moments figurines which have come to define angelic, Most people picture angels as harmless, doe-eyed innocents. The Bible suggests otherwise. At least, that is what we're left to assume given the way they terrify everyone they meet. Clarence might startle you, but it's hard to imagine him inspiring terror. And yet, angels do. And that's just angels. Those who meet God fall to the ground, hide their face, and beg for mercy. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. Woe is me, I am ruined. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God did not even appear on Mount Sinai, but when the people heard his voice, they, quote, stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Why the fear? Why the hiding? Isn't God loving and good? Yes, but he is perfectly so, and that is overwhelming. The Bible describes God as majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds. In other words, he is so just and pure, so perfectly righteous and radiant, that his goodness overpowers us. It proclaims just how small we are and how far we have fallen. It's to this quality, which is captured by the term holiness, that we now turn our attention. Many think of holiness as something that can be graded on a 100-point scale, That is, at the low end of a spectrum, say the mid-teens, you have criminals and deviants. About a third of the way up the line, mid-30s to low-40s, are average Joes. Ahead of them, in the 60s, are assorted philanthropists, humanitarians, and missionaries. And then, if you push up to 100, or beyond that if it's possible, you have God. This is not what the Bible teaches. According to Scripture, God is so much better than we are that it's not appropriate to think we operate on the same scale. Instead, holiness means God is morally perfect and completely separated from the corrupting stain of sin. In other words, God's holiness is comprised of two aspects, one relational and the other moral. God is holy because he is holy other, and God is holy because he is a righteous force for good. Let me unpack these one at a time. The first aspect of holy is preserved in the words saint and sanctify. 
In the New Testament, a saint is not someone who has achieved a, a level of spiritual goodness, even though this is what most people think. Instead, it's someone who has been set apart by God for some specific purpose. We see this idea on display in the word kadosh, the Hebrew word we translate holy in English. In Exodus 3, kadosh is used to refer to the ground where God appeared as a burning bush. Later, it's used to describe the altar and basin in the midst of the tabernacle. It's not that there was anything special about the sand Moses stood on or an intrinsic difference in the stones that were selected for the altar. Kadosh merely indicated that God had designated or set aside these particular items for his use. The same idea, indeed the same word, is used to describe the Sabbath, Jewish people, priests, furniture, even parts of buildings. They are holy because they were set apart by God for his particular purposes. But in addition to set apart, holiness also came to mean righteousness or freedom from sin. Indeed, as the term is used to describe God, it always implies positive moral perfection. Not the small and small-minded understanding of the legalists, those who announce that they don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that, go, that do, but the freedom from weakness and wickedness that comes through purity. God's holiness means that he is altogether good, pure, and righteous. Indeed, God is actually the standard for goodness and purity. It's not that he is called holy because he lives up to an independent measurement, but that his character establishes the definition of goodness. You do not have to read very far in the Bible to be persuaded that God is holy. Numerous passages state as much. In fact, the point is made hundreds of times in the book of Psalms alone. But your study would be incomplete if it did not include Isaiah 6. There we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. There are several things to note about Isaiah's vision. For starters, he writes that the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple, hinting at just how holy God is. The more important a person is, the more majestic their robe, God's robe would necessarily dwarf any other. Additionally, Isaiah notes the seraphs need to shield themselves from God's brilliance. To that, to that end, they were given an extra set of wings to hide their face from his overwhelming radiance. But the most significant part of this passage is found in the threefold repetition of the word holy. In the presence of God Almighty, the seraphs appear locked in an eternal proclamation of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. What are we to make of this? Why the repetition? The answer is simple. It's for emphasis. Ancient Hebrew does not contain any superlatives or punctuation. A writer cannot emphasize something by using the word very or ending a sentence with an exclamation mark. Therefore, the only way they can drive a point home is by repeating a key word. There are not many words in the Bible that are repeated two times. Only one is repeated three. That is holiness. 
Now, I do not believe that this means that God is more holy than he is loving, powerful, or just, for the Bible tells us that God is perfect in each of his attributes, but it's worth noting that the Bible calls God holy more than it calls him anything else. Holy is the epitaph most often affixed to his name. How does God's holiness affect us? What are we expected to do in light of it? How exactly can we respond to the call to be holy because God is holy? I believe there are at least four ways we should respond to what we've just reviewed. First, we should worship God. In saying this, I'm not making the case for attending worship services, though we're told to do that. Rather, I'm suggesting that you periodically add your voice to the chorus of angels that are continually declaring his great worth. In fact, I'm suggesting that from time to time, you should feel as though you have no other choice. Worship is a reflexive response for those who have grasped even a bit of God's character. If you know him, you will praise him. This does not mean that you live in that mindset. I sure do not but that there are times when you are brought to your knees in awe. Secondly, we should fear God. Many have recently dismissed the biblical admonition to fear God by suggesting that it means little more than respect or reverence. This is not the case. The Bible links God's holiness with our fear over 100 times. A real sense of his moral purity and righteous zeal should shake us out of a cavalier attitude towards God. This is not to suggest that we daily quake in fright, but I hardly think that's our problem. We are remarkably casual in our attitude about His holiness. Three, we should confess our sin. A third appropriate response to God's holiness is personal confession. A right view of Him reminds us of the standard of which we fall short. An understanding of His holiness leads us to beg for His forgiveness. Four, we should live holy lives. Finally, the fourth logical response to an understanding of God's moral purity is to flee from sin. Some people mistakenly assume that their moral lapses are no worse than an occasional bogey in golf and further believe that a mistake on one hole can be made up by birdieing the next. God doesn't view sin so casually. He views it like cancer instead, which means that even one cell is too many. There is no such thing as being 99% holy. You are either holy or you are not. Even a small sin against an infinite God is an infinite offense. The Omniscience of God. Psalm 147 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. In 1 John 3 we read, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. God is not only majestic in His holiness, He is amazing in His knowledge. Our great God knows everything about everything. He knows everything about himself. He knows everything about creation and everything about history. He knows what is happening right now and what will happen tomorrow. He even knows everything that could have happened but did not and everything that could happen but will not. There is nothing God does not know. Theologians refer to God's perfect and complete knowledge as his omniscience, a word that combines the Latin words omni, meaning all, and science, meaning knowledge. To say that God is omniscient implies that he fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. There is no question God cannot answer, no problem he cannot solve. He has never been surprised, never shocked. He has never said, oh, really? In fact, 
He has never learned anything at all, nor can he, because he already knows everything. Isaiah states as much when he asks a series of rhetorical questions in chapter 40 of his book. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The clear answer is no one. God has never needed the advice of others because he has always known everything. His knowledge is comprehensive, infallible, instantly accessible, uncontaminated by sin, and glorious. God's perfect and comprehensive knowledge means that he knows you completely, and that means several very encouraging things. For starters, it means that he knows all about your feelings and fears. Some people mistakenly believe that no one understands them that nobody knows what they're going through, how frustrated they are, or how deeply they are hurting. But God knows. In fact, the psalmist informs us that he is a record of our tears and that no trial we have ever faced goes unnoticed. God understands your situation better than you do yourself. God also knows your future. His omniscience means that he not only knows what we are going through right now, he also knows what awaits us. He knows what, we'll, what we will need at 2.06 tomorrow afternoon and what will happen on the third Tuesday of next February. In fact, he knows exactly how long you will live, and he knew this before you were born. Many people spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's going to happen to them in the future. They study astrology, read tea leaves, and consult fortune tellers all in a vain effort to know what is coming next. God knows. In fact, it's as clear to him as this moment is to you, and he is willing to share what we need to know about tomorrow if we ask him. Of course, he seldom tells us as much as we'd like to know, but that's a good thing. For starters, when our headlights shine too far into the future, we almost always fall into pride or despair. Furthermore, what we want, more information about the future, often prevents us from what we need, greater faith. And God is more concerned with the latter than the former. But be assured that he knows what awaits us. Tomorrow is today for the Lord. He sees your future more completely and clearly than you see your present. God's omniscience also means that he knows all about your faithfulness. Every time you do the right thing, God is watching. Every time you humble yourself, avoid temptation, serve others, give sacrificially, or care for a widow, God sees. Christ said as much in the Sermon on the Mount. After warning us not to do our acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them, he goes on to assure us that our Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Christ even assures us that no act of kindness is too small to go unnoticed. Even a cup of cold water offered to those in need will be rewarded. Clearly, there is much to celebrate about the fact that God knows you completely, but you do not have to think about this for very long before you realize that it can be a terrifying thing as well. Do you really want to be fully known by a holy God? Do you want all of your secrets exposed? People do want to be known. We're social creatures. We need friends. Solitary confinement's a punishment. But there is quite a difference between being partially known and having our lives laid bare before the unblinking gaze of God. Psalm 139 tells us that he knows what we are going to say before we do. Isaiah 66 informs us that he knows every thought that races through our mind. 
Is this a good thing? I intentionally share my life quite openly with Sherry, my wife, and I am deliberately transparent with two longtime friends. We ask each other probing questions about our marriages, our motivations, and our spiritual practices. We share our failures and confess our sins to each other, all in an effort to become better men. But even there, there are limits. After all, there are some truths I hardly admit to myself. Is it a good thing that God knows everything I've ever said, done, and thought? The answer is, it all depends. It's a wonderful thing to be fully known if your past has been forgiven. It's a terrible thing if it is not. In God is Not Good, outspoken anti-theist Christopher Hitchens argues that God's omniscience is more invasive and oppressive than anything the North Korean despots have, ever to, have yet to dream up. Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist author, said essentially the same thing. In his most famous play, No Exit, he went so far as to suggest that hell is little more than being unable to escape the fixed stares of others. Moreover, he complained that God's ability to know his thoughts made him feel like a frog splayed open on a dissection table. This should not surprise us. Those who carry the burden and shame of hidden sin are rightly horrified by the idea that Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But being fully known by a God who has forgiven us should bring us great joy. In this case, God's omniscience not only means that he is completely aware of our needs, desires, and fears, it also means that he already knows the worst about us and loves us all the same. Think about this. God already knows what is inside every closet. He knows every lie you've ever told. He knows every event that could ever be used to blackmail you. And his response is love. So where does that leave us? More to the point, where does that leave you? I've been writing for those who know Christ. That is, those who have embraced him as their Lord. But I'm certain that some of you are not in this camp, and some of you are not entirely sure. For those in the last two groups, let me admit that I've been holding out on you a bit. The truth is, there are a few things God does not know. He does not know an equal. He does not know a limit to his love. He does not know any reason not to trust him. And he does not know any reason to wait to place your trust in him. Becoming a follower of Christ happens when you prayerfully agree that you've fallen short of his holy standards, ask for his forgiveness, Declare your belief that Christ is Lord and begin to follow him. It is both as simple and as profound as that. Let me encourage you to throw open the door of your heart and allow Christ to enter. He will shine the light of truth and life into the dark corners of your soul and forgive you for all that you have done wrong. You can move from shame to relief. You can be free from the futile efforts to hide your failures and be embraced by your gracious, loving Father. If you already know Christ, let me encourage you to lean into his omniscience in two specific ways. First, admit your failures and move on. Do not play games with sin or with God. Flee the first and be as honest with the second as you know how. He knows anyway. The moment you realize you have stepped away from him through sins of omission, failure to serve others, fight injustice, care for the poor, etc., or sins of commission, selfishness, pride, lust, greed, you should repent, admit your sin, ask for forgiveness, and invite the Holy Spirit to fill and direct you. Secondly, seek his counsel. 
Through Bible study and prayer, we are able to enter into communion with the one who knows all things. You cannot find a better counselor. Learn to listen, trust, and obey. The Omnipotence of God. In Matthew 19, Christ said, With God, all things are possible. In Ephesians 3, Paul wrote, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. To God belongs all conceivable power. Anything that can be imagined, God can do, no matter how difficult it may appear. He can make lightning strike or a tornado swirl. He can raise men from the dead, heal the blind, speak galaxies into existence, and save the world through his Son. Whatever he chooses to do, he succeeds in doing, for he is the Almighty. As A.W. Tozer writes, God possesses what no creature can, an incomprehensible plenitude of power, a potency that is absolute. Since God is also infinite, whatever he has must be without limit. Therefore, God has limitless power. Theologians refer to this attribute as God's omnipotence from omni, meaning all, and potence, meaning powerful. The meaning is clear. God is completely capable. He is able to do all his holy will. The combined strength of mankind, the power of the raging oceans, the unleashed energy of one trillion suns pale in comparison to the might of the Almighty. The Bible proclaims God's omnipotence in a variety of ways. It's celebrated in his titles and displayed through his acts. The prophets declare it. The psalmist sings of it. God himself even highlights it by repeatedly asking those who doubt him, Is anything too hard for me? There is also the matter of creation. As Paul wrote to the Romans, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made. It's to this idea, God as maker, that I want to turn now. No other book has as famous a first line as the Bible, nor can any book claim as important an opening statement. The implications of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, are positively staggering. Chief among them is the idea that God brought forth the entire cosmos out of absolutely nothing. Stop and consider this for just a moment. We frequently speak about creating things. A young boy builds a birdhouse, an author writes a story, an artist creates a masterpiece. But in these cases, the creator starts with something and reshapes it. What they're really doing is manipulating the materials or ideas available to them. God created ex nihilo. That is, he started with nothing, not even space, and created everything there is. According to astronomers, there are 10,000 billion billion stars clustered among 100 billion galaxies stretching over 15 billion light years. Each of these stars is a well-controlled hydrogen bomb. The star we orbit, which is small compared to many, converts 660 million tons of hydrogen into 600 million tons of helium every second in order to create the life-giving rays of energy we need for warmth, food, and life. How can we begin to comprehend this? <laughs> we can't. The universe is vast beyond our comprehension. And he made it all. He created everything everywhere out of nothing at all. 
The only thing more remarkable than the universe we live in is the creator himself. His power and glory are unmatched. Some people choose to dismiss the New Testament because they're bothered by the miracles of Christ. How can I believe that this man walked on water or fed 5,000? I'm an educated person. These things can't happen. Having chosen to believe that God created everything out of nothing, no other miracles give me pause. Of course, God's omnipotence does raise some questions. Perhaps you have a few yourself. The most common include two that are relatively quickly dismissed and two that are quite profound. Let me briefly address all four. First, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Under the uh, quickly dismissed category comes a set of questions popular in Introduction to Philosophy classes. If God is all-powerful, can he make a round square? Can he make it rain and not rain in the same place at the same time? Can he make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? The simple answer to all these questions is no. But it's not no because God's power is limited. It's no because the questions are nonsense. God cannot make a square circle because there is no such thing. Hence, there is nothing for God to make. God cannot make a rock so big that he cannot lift it because no such rock can be created. It cannot even be conceived of. You cannot assume both an omnipotent God and an immovable rock in the same universe without falling prey to the fallacy of contradictory predicates. When the assumptions made in posing a problem are inconsistent with one another, for example, a round square, you're not posing a difficult problem. You're talking nonsense. Second question. Can God lie? Can he change who he is? Can God break his promises? Related to the questions about rocks and round squares are a handful of more thoughtful ones. In a variety of ways, they ask, can God violate his nature? Once again, the answer is no. And once again, the answer is no, because to do so is inconceivable. A perfectly righteous God cannot be unrighteous. A perfectly trustworthy God cannot violate someone's trust. A being cannot be perfectly trustworthy and untrustworthy at the same time. Moreover, just like any other real being, God cannot be other than who he is. He cannot act in any way that is truly inconsistent with his own nature. We need to be careful when we talk about God's omnipotence. The claim the Bible makes is that God can do anything that can be done. It does not claim that he can do absolutely anything, such as make a round square. Only things that are possible. It's important to not make the term omnipotence carry more freight than it was designed to transport. Question three, how does God's power intersect with our free will? If God is all powerful, then his will supersedes that of everyone else. But the Bible suggests that we have the ability to make choices. How can we be free to exercise our will if God's will is absolute? How do God's sovereignty and our freedom intersect? Unlike the previous two questions, this one is profound. In fact, a long-standing debate exists between those who argue that God ordains, he causes all things, or at the very least, all things that truly matter, and those who believe that we make all of our own decisions. Those in the first camp are referred to as Calvinists after John Calvin, a Protestant reformer. 
Those in the second group are called Arminians or Wesleyans after Jacobus Arminius, a Dutch theologian, and John Wesley, the British pastor who founded the Methodist Church. The disagreements between these two camps are not only complicated and nuanced, they're also intramural in nature. That is, they take place outside of the fence posts, so they fall outside the scope of this study. But there are two quick points that can be made. First, you do have freedom, but it's limited. Scripture suggests that we do have choices, but that there are boundaries beyond which we cannot go, in part because of our sin and in part because of God's sovereignty. Some compare this to a game of chess with God. You have the freedom to make many different moves, but since he is omniscient, there is never any doubt as to who will prevail. Others suggest that our life is like a ride aboard an ocean liner bound for Europe. While we're on that ship, we're free to make a number of decisions. We can watch movies, sleep, play shuffleboard, or read a book. We do have choices, but the boat is headed to Europe, and there's nothing we can do to change that. Secondly, Decisions do have consequences. The Bible says that we have freedom to make many decisions, but once we choose, we're not free to determine the consequences. Certain actions lead to certain results. We reap what we sow. Question four. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why does evil exist? The final question we'll explore is the most difficult question Christians face. And once again, the answers that are proposed are complicated, nuanced, and lie mostly outside the scope of this study. But given that this problem deeply disturbs many, a bit more information is probably helpful. The classic formulation of the problem of evil was posed by Epicurus, a 4th century Greek philosopher. He stated, Either God wants to abolish evil and he cannot, or he can, but he does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to but cannot, he is impotent. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. But if God is truly good and also all-powerful, then evil should not exist. But it does. Therefore, God is either not all-good or he is not all-powerful. Some try to solve this dilemma by dismissing the idea that God is good and loving. They argue that God is indifferent to our plight. He created the world, established laws to govern it, and set things in motion, but he has long since moved on to other things. At this time, he is little more than an absentee landlord. Of course, this view does not mesh with the Bible, which teaches that God is not only loving, but that God is love. He knows our name, hears our prayers, and sent his son to die in order to rescue us. A second group tries to solve the problem by dismissing the claim that God is omnipotent. They argue that he would like to defeat evil, but cannot, at least not yet. Perhaps one day he'll be able to do so, but for the moment he is still limited, even anemic. Of course, this view is also out of sync with what we learn about God in the Bible. The Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a small tribal deity of limited means, but the creator of the galaxies. He's able to calm the storm, heal the sick, and raise the dead. He does not always intervene to do what we pray for, but it's clear from Scripture that he can. The biblical witness clearly declares that God's power is unlimited. So, what are our options? How should we respond to those who argue that the reality of evil means that God is either not all-powerful or not all-good? There are three ideas frequently put forward. Some theologians attempt to solve the problem of evil by arguing that love demands a choice. 
and that our misuse of that choice has led to the problems we face. God might have made us automatons, but he did not. He chose to give us the ability to choose to love him or to walk away. One day God will intervene and make all things right, but that day has not yet come. Consequently, we live with the suffering and pain that results from billions of bad decisions. A second group argues that the only way we could ever appreciate how loving, gracious, and merciful God is, is to see him at work in a broken world. This view is based largely on John 9, where we read, quote, As he, Christ, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus then went on to heal the man, giving him an opportunity to show his greatness. Obviously, you cannot heal a blind man in a world where no one is blind. You cannot display mercy in a world where no one is guilty, nor can you show unconditional love in a world where everyone is perfect. This view requires a really big view of God, a willingness to admit that, Just as minor actors must allow the star as much of the stage as he requires in order to display his artistic talents, we must allow God all the room he needs to show his glory. Some, especially those who have suffered a deep loss, find this solution troubling. But the realization that we will spend eternity with God and that for all of eternity, we will have a chance to look at him with greater appreciation of his glory, love, mercy, and grace has merit. A third view suggests that some of what we see as bad is not, or rather that God uses some of what we believe is bad for our greater good. This argument is supported by those who believe that most of their darkest moments have turned out to be for the best. In fact, This view is supported by the observation that some of the most interesting, capable, focused, and joyful people I know are those who have suffered the most. Do these answers satisfy you? Perhaps not. The ways of God remain a bit mysterious and nowhere more than here. What we can state with certainty is that God is both omnipotent and good. He does not ever do what is evil. He is ultimately sovereign Therefore, he is able in ways beyond us to use evil for good. We also know that one day evil will be vanquished. Perhaps on that day, much of what confuses us, even that which presently breaks our hearts, will be clarified. At the moment, our challenge is to trust in a God who is trustworthy and who can relate perfectly to our pain. Indeed, to begin to make things right, he sent his Son, our Lord, to his death. In the end, God wins, evil loses, justice is served, and Jesus comes back for us. Some final remarks. As this study draws to a close, let me remind you of a few key points. First, the approach we've been using to learn about God is just one of many. Some studies focus on God's names, others on his acts, Ours has been an exploration of his attributes. To that end, we have divided God's character into several categories. It's not our belief that God himself is divided in such a way. Indeed, as we briefly noted in the third study in this series, he is simple. That is, everything about him exists in a unified, seamless whole. We have divided his attributes not because they are, 
but so we can understand them and by understanding them, understand him. Secondly, our study has not been exhaustive. God is infinite. Therefore, we can never know everything about him. In fact, we not only are unable to fully understand the attributes we know about, we have no reason to believe he has revealed all of them to us. There are things a parent does not share with a child. This study has been limited to some of the things he has revealed. Finally, the goal is to know God. We all lose if you let this be an academic exercise instead of a practical one. Knowing God starts with learning about him, but if it stops there, we are short of the mark. Our goal is to enter into a relationship with God because it is the only through him that we are complete. He is the one we were created for. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 9. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.